Hey friends, this is Ellen Weatherford. And this is Christian Weatherford. And this is Just the Zoo of Us, the animal review podcast where we take your favorite species of animals, we review them, and we rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Christian and I are not zoological experts. We do a lot of research and we do our best to make sure we're presenting information from trustworthy sources. As best we can. Yep. And in that vein, I would like to make our first ever self-correction. Oh. Yes. I was listening to something recently where I heard them talk about nudie branks. Oh. In episode five, we talked about the blue dragon sea slug, Glaucus atlanticus, Mm -hmm. and I repeatedly referred to them as nudib branches. Okay. That's how how I would have pronounced it, too. This is a pronunciation issue. Apparently, a lot of people do pronounce it that way, but the most commonly accepted way of pronouncing it is nudibranch. Kind of in that same etymology as the bronchial parts of the breathing system, maybe? Sure. Or like chiropractic things chiropractic so anyway i heard someone refer to them as nudibranchs and i remembered that we had called them nudibranches and i felt really self-conscious about it so um just to double check myself i messaged the monterey bay aquarium and asked them how they pronounce it and they said nudibranchs so i'm going to take their word for it and apologize for mispronouncing nudibranch over and over again all good yep that's cool that the, the monterey bay aquarium replied back to you they did, and they were very uh, friendly about it. It was uh, a DM exchange on Twitter that was maybe like three or four messages long, and they somehow managed to cram like eight puns into those. <laughs> I was about to say, did they did they answer in the form of a meme? Well, not a meme, no, but there were some emojis in there. Excellent. Yeah. So, but they were they were very responsive to my question and helped out a lot. So, fantastic. That's my little self correction. It's new to Brank, not new to Branch. Learn something new every day. Yep. So that's that's just part of our journey for self-improvement. Yay. <laughs> All right. So last week I went first with a Malayan flying fox. So Christian, it is your turn to go first this week. Yes. Yeah, so speaking of learning something new, my animal for this week is the infamous blobfish. Fantastic. The blobfish was recommended to us by Matthew St. Jean and Dalton Weeks. Incessantly, I might add. Yes. so you can finally get off our backs (laughs) persistence pays off folks so the blobfish uh that actually that term actually refers to a couple different species or it could i should say but the one specifically i'm going to be doing is the cycrolutus microporus this is the species thought to be of the the infamous picture of the blobfish on the internet yep i've got it in my head yep giant booger right yeah basically yeah (laughs) <laughs> I'm getting my information from the australianmuseum.net.au website. Okay. It's for the Australian Museum website. And speaking of which, that blobfish picture that so many know about, uh, that little blobfish was known as Mr. Blobby by the ship crew that pulled it up while trawling. Boy, a lot of creative minds on that uh, <laughs> on that trolley, huh? <laughs> Uh, this. Now let's do the next thing. It's it's kind of blob-shaped. All right, Mr. Blobby. We'll go with that. I wonder if they even got the gender right. But anyway. It could have been a Miss Blobby. That's true. So a little bit of basic info. This particular specimen was 285 millimeters long, or about 11 inches. Oh, that's pretty big. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this particular one, again, was found off of the Norfolk Ridge, which is northwest of New Zealand. And it was pulled up from between 1,013 meters and 1,340 meters, which is about 3,300 to 4,400 feet. And that happened in June of 2003. Okay. However, uh, the family can be found in in the Atlantic, Indian, and Pacific Oceans, anywhere between the depths of 100 meters and 2,800 meters, or 300 to 9,000 feet. Oh, that's way down there. Yes. That's over a mile down. It's quite a bit. Dang. The taxonomic family that they belong to is called the Sacroludidae. And the relatives in that family are, of course, the blobfish, along with some other fish known as fathead sculpins. Fathead, one more time? 
Fathead Sculpins. Sculpin. S-C-U-L-P-I-N-S. Okay. Yeah. They were not kind with the naming convention of this fish. <laughs> so... They're looking at him like, he's got a fat head. <laughs> Call him fat head. So I think as many of our listeners can probably guess, a lot of what I have to say is going to fall under the aesthetic section. <laughs> but luckily that's the last one. So first up... <laughs> Let's really build up to it. This is the drum roll leading up to... So first up is effectiveness. This is how well do they do the things that... They are meant to do. So these are kind of natural abilities, things that are built into themselves to do this. How good their body do. Right. So for the blobfish, I'm giving it a 7 out of 10. That's okay. For effectiveness. And that is because it is found in very, very deep water, and it is built for very, very deep water. Sure. So one, its bones are very soft Hmm. um, to avoid cracking under extreme pressures. Is it bone or is it cartilage? They refer to it as bone. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And then its flesh and muscles are very flabby and soft, which meant to handle the pressures, which kind of goes back to the goblin shark, right? Because that was one of the the big descriptors. Yeah, definitely flabby is what I was thinking. Yep. Uh, So they're built for these extreme pressures. Another thing that they have going for them is they don't have a swim bladder like many fish do. And that has to do with the extreme changes in pressure. I'm going to talk more about that in the aesthetic section, though. <laughs> well, well, hold on. They don't have a swim bladder. How do they stay up? So they don't have a swim bladder. And then the way they get around that is that their body being made of kind of a flabby material is of a density very close to water. Okay. So they have a basically a, a, a neutral buoyancy. Oh. Yep. So how do they make themselves go higher or lower Just in the water? Just swimming slightly. Oh, Okay. <laughs> So when you have a net buoyancy or a net neutral buoyancy, uh, you'll just stay wherever you're at. And then you can just kind of guide yourself with momentum up or down. Oh, you're just aiming. Basically. Okay. Um, Think of space movement, basically. Oh, nice. (laughs) Um, Whereas other kinds of fish, they are not of the same density as water. So yeah, so there are fish that require air bladders to control where they are in the water column. And then that air bladder has to react to them being in different parts of the the water column because then the deeper you go, the more pressure is exerted on you. Again, I'm going to go more into how this affects the blobfish particularly a little further down. Okay, we'll get there. (laughs) So next up is ingenuity. This is the category that describes how good they are at doing things like tool use or making plans things that are intelligent i'm giving the blobfish just a four out of ten on this one and i should also mention there is not a whole lot of data out there about the blobfish oh yeah yeah so these little guys are found very deep in the water and it is pretty rare to find them in their natural habitat and living Uh, they are found many times being pulled up by deep trawlers uh, but otherwise not a whole lot of information there I think that's common for deep sea creatures Very. because there's just so much space to cover. You can't possibly have eyes on them at all times, right? Yep. yep. Like it's just so vast. That's like most of the earth, most of our planet is wide open ocean areas. So it's just impossible to keep tabs on what they're up to. Yeah. I think it's, it's said that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do the bottom of our own ocean. Yeah. And like once you get down there, oh boy, it's popping off down there deep in the ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where you start to get into the really just completely wild evolutionary, like evolution just went insane yeah, down there. Yeah, because it has to depend on all sorts of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm giving the blobfish a 4 out of 10 for ingenuity. I'm mostly giving it that score for its ability as a an ambush predator. Really? So they're not very fast, of course. <laughs> they don't look fast. So they, they do a sit and wait type method where they just wait for other things to get close to it are they on the bottom of the ocean or are they swimming around just kind of like in the like open water it seemed most pictures i've seen of them in their natural habitat have been at the bottom okay so i think that range in depth primarily depends on where does the bottom sit in their particular environment oh that makes more sense okay because cool, cool. they're, they're not, I don't think they're swimming up and down a huge range of depth. It just happens just wherever the bottom happens to be. Okay. Right. That makes sense. Okay. So they're chilling out at the bottom. Maybe they're like hiding in rocks or 
like maybe they're hiding and waiting for their prey to get close by. What's weird is the the videos I've seen of them, like open sandy areas, and then they're just kind of hugging like the sparse rock or piece of coral here and there, just kind of sitting. Sure. It's kind of bizarre. It, it, it might make more sense when there's just no light. But <laughs> Yeah. So that's something you have to think about when you're down at the bottom of the ocean. Vision doesn't work like it does up here on the surface, right? right? Just being able to look around and see things doesn't isn't necessarily going to help you. So they have to be a little bit more creative with their camouflage tactics. Exactly. So that's that's pretty interesting. Yeah. And the final category, aesthetics. Oh, boy. Uh, so this is kind of self-explanatory, but this is where we talk about what they look like. I'm giving what I consider to be a very generous score <laughs> of four out of ten <laughs> for aesthetics. Some wiggle room there. <laughs> <laughs> and here's why. So the infamous picture of the blobfish of Mr. Blobby, it's not good, right? Mm-mm. Just a pile of goo. He's struggling. And then he has a weird nose type structure, which is odd in fish. The right? nose like flops over his yeah, nose. Very, it looks like... um like, Squidward-esque. I was about to say Squidward! <laughs> or um, the cartoons that Jukebox uh, the Ghost like to... To draw. Oh, Tommy Siegel's uh, cartoon style where the nose flops over the mouth. I wonder if it was inspired by the blobfish. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And then it has a weird yellow mucusy bit in the corner of its mouth also. The the boogers. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. It's not great. Here's what's actually going on in that picture. The blobfish in that picture looks the way it does because of damage it took from the rapid change in pressure. Oh, it, it got hurt. Yeah. Okay. So that is not what they look like in their natural habitat. I would hope not. <laughs> so lots of fish have this problem where if they are pulled out of the water quickly from a deep depth, they don't have time to react to the change in pressure biologically. So it causes damage um, to their to their bodies. This happens with humans, too. It humans can. can take a lot of damage from a change in pressure that happens too quickly you yes. can get the bends from it yes and i actually am going to talk about what's going on there oh okay so first of all the blobfish is meant for a huge amount of pressure so just being at the sea level pressure by itself is it causes you know its body to kind of swell mm-hmm. and droop because if you've ever seen a balloon for example uh, go higher 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 and higher until it's like in the very thin atmosphere it starts to get bigger right Sure. So that's from uh, equalization of pressure. So when you have a pressure differential there, the natural thing to happen is trying it's trying to equalize itself. So when you have a balloon with a certain volume of, we'll say, air inside of it, the pressure is equalized on the inside and the outside. So as that balloon moves into an area of less pressure, the amount of air that's inside the balloon doesn't change, but it wants to equalize. So the air pressure from the inside going out is now more than the pressure from the outside yeah. going in. Right. So it's starting to... It gets bigger. Expand, right? Yeah. So that, the that's, that's the only option in that setting. Another would be to let gas out. But with a balloon example, it doesn't have that, that opportunity. So it just gets bigger. So eventually what will happen is the, the balloon just gets bigger and bigger until it, it pops. So that's usually what happens with weather balloons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Along that, that vein, that's what happens biologically with creatures that go from one pressure to the next. Not not so violent as a explosion. <laughs> I would hope not. God, yeah. I would hope not. I just thought <laughs> of that little Mr. Blobby just like popping like a balloon yeah, and yeah. getting that fish snot everywhere so that is known as barotrauma barotrauma yes oh like uh, like a barometer yes so that yeah. that means pressure then yep and then there's all sorts of different things that can fall under that and also you reminded me the booger per se mm-hmm. <laughs> is not actually that it is actually a parasitic copepod a parasite yes oh interesting yep, that unfortunately was just positioned in the worst place ever <laughs> <laughs> oh man yep that poor little guy yeah yeah man he had a parasite he got taken up to the surface where he's not supposed to be and he got deflated like a balloon well not deflated but more overinflated. inflated <laughs> oh man that blobfish was having the worst day yeah yeah 
So let's talk about some other things with bear trauma that fish have to deal with. So even fish that are fished out of waters of 30 feet deep and are pulled up too quickly. So these kind of fish usually have air bladders or swim bladders. So a problem that can happen there is when they're pulled up from that depth too quickly, their swim bladder cannot compensate quick enough. Oh. So what it would normally do is, is it would release gas out of the swim bladder to compensate for that. But it can only do that so quickly. So if it's pulled out of the water very, very quickly, what will happen is the air bladder will expand. Just like the balloon in, in our example, where it's trying to equalize the pressure. Oh, no. So here's the problem with that. <laughs> I can think of some. <laughs> um, it displaces its organs when this happens. Oh, that's so, bad. So a fish that is suffering from this kind of barotrauma, you will see its eyes starting to bulge out. Ew. Its stomach will come out of its mouth. And then uh, the last thing that could happen is its intestines come out, well, the other end. Okay, great. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So a lot of states actually have rules that, you know, if you're out on a boat and fishing, you have to have a device of some sort to relieve pressure in the fish for this scenario if you plan on throwing it back. Really? Yes. All it basically is is a syringe. So you just pierce the fish into its swim bladder, releasing gases, and then hopefully it should all return to normal. (laughs) How do you know where the swim bladder is and get the syringe into the... You know what? Now that I think of it, I'm assuming this applies to people that are like professionals. Yeah, yeah, these are usually people very used to fishing and... It's the specifics is kind of based on the species of fish, but I think in general, it's, it's all in the same general area. Of course, I'm sure it takes practice to not go too deep or hit the wrong areas because you could cause more damage to the fish that way. And again, that only applies if you're trying to throw the fish back. Because if you don't do that, what will happen is that they will stay at the top of the water. Oh, no. <laughs> they won't be able to, de- to descend. Well, they don't belong there. Yeah. Uh, eventually their swim bladder might compensate, but what will more likely happen is something will eat it before it's able to do that. Yeah, probably. (laughs) You got some opportunistic, uh, little fishy swimming around in there. So that's, that's a, that's a form of barotrauma that's experienced by most fish. Now with the blobfish, it does not have a swim bladder. So that specific thing does not happen to them. However, their flesh is just (laughs) <laughs> when it happens bless those poor babies <laughs> in humans uh, you mentioned the bends which happens usually with scuba divers uh, when they come back to the surface too quickly or when they're not doing the right things when they're doing that so my understanding of it is when you are ascending back to the surface you're supposed to breathe out um, the opposite being holding your breath or trying to breathe in so again, it's the, it's the exact same thing with as the balloon, right? So you either need to let gas out or the container is going to try to compensate. Yeah. In humans, that container is your lungs. Yeah, you don't want those yeah. overfilling. Yeah. Or I guess more to be more correct, it would be the diaphragm and then by extension, your lungs. Yeah, you got to be careful with that. I, I have never been scuba diving, but I know a lot of people have been scuba diving and you do have to like control your ascent back up to the top to make sure that you don't do damage to your yep. insides. Yep. And I, I understand it actually takes a while. Like if you're really, really deep down, it can take a long time for you to come back sure. up to the top because you have to like come up, you have to like come up a little bit and then stop and wait and then come up a little bit more and stop and wait. Mm -hmm. So it's like you have to do it in phases so that your body isn't just letting everything out all at once. Yep. So yeah, um, that's the story with Mr. Blobby. It's the unfortunate (laughs) result of a parasite and barotrauma. I guess that's why he'd be like that. Yep. Um, I do encourage folks to try and see what they look like in their natural habitat, not under the effects of barotrauma. Not... Too much better, but at least better than what we're used to. (laughs) So was your aesthetic score based on Mr. Blobby and his unfortunate circumstance, or was it based on um, how they normally look? It's how they normally look. They're they're still not a particularly aesthetically pleasing fish, but it's much better than the meme. And in terms of conservation status, uh, I couldn't find one for this particular species, but other species in the family are listed as least concern. Okay. And that's the blobfish. pretty good yeah i learned a lot about deep sea fish in general as well through this so thank you that was well done no problem all right honey what animal do you have for us this week this week i'm gonna be talking about the brown-throated three-toed sloth 
Whoa, that's a lot of adjectives. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long name, yeah? The scientific name is Bradipus variegatus. Bradipus, I think, is pretty good. <laughs> Brad got... is short for Bradipus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so every time, a lot of people mistakenly think that the name Brad is short for like Bradley or something. It's actually Bradipus. So I'm getting my information on this animal from National Geographic, Live Science, Animal Diversity Web, and slothsanctuary.com, which good. is the website for the sloth sanctuary in Costa Rica. Oh, okay. Yep. There's a big sloth sanctuary in Costa Rica that I've been following on social media for 10 years. Whoa. So they have a really active and great social media presence. They're always posting cute sloth pictures. Aww. Yeah. So I was excited to talk about the sloth. Now, there is the three-toed sloth of which there are a few different species. Uh -huh. And then there are the two-toed sloths, which have a few different species as well. Cool. They're very different from each other. They are both sloths, yes, and they have some things in common, but there are pretty big differences between them in a lot of different areas, like very different behavior, different diets, and they look different too. They're sure. immediately like identifiable as very different from each other. And of course, a 50% increase in number of toes. Is that the... <laughs> Is that, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I don't math good. I'm sorry. 50%, no sure. <laughs> From two to three, at least. Yes. So, yeah, if you've never seen a sloth before, this is an arboreal mammal. They live in the trees. They have very long forearms. Mm. At, their forearms are twice as long as their back legs. Wow. So they have very long forearms, kind of short back legs. At the end of each of their limbs are three long, sharp claws. Mm. They're very, very long. They don't have like fingers per se. They just have these claws. They are covered in a wiry gray or brown fur, and they have a really small, what I would describe as a compact face, where they have a really short nose and they have wide set eyes, and their eyes are framed by these black bands. They kind of look like, almost like a raccoon's bands, how they go like hmm. off to the side of the face. Okay. Yeah. So that's about what they look like. They're not that big. The This particular species of three-toed sloth is about two feet long from head to tail. I think they have a tail, but you can't really see it. If they do have one, it's very, very short. It's a little you can't nubby. See it. Yeah, just a little nub. <laughs> so it's a little guy. Oh, two feet. Uh, that is 60 centimeters. Ah. Or, I don't know, maybe chicken and a half. Two chickens, maybe. <laughs> Here we go. You thought I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hoped, I'm, I suppose. <laughs> I'm back on that. They, are, they get up to about 14 pounds which is about six and a half kilograms. Okay. We can think of this as about puppy size. That's our dog, by the way. Not like a puppy, like our dog named puppy. Yes. So about the size of our dog. You can find these sloths in the tropical forests of Central and South America, kind of all over the place. They, really? they have a pretty wide range where you can find them. Hmm. Their taxonomic order is called Pylosa, which we have actually talked about before when we talked about the Tamandua. They're oh. in the same order as them. I can see that with their little hands. Yeah, yeah. with the claw hands. Yeah. Yeah, so this three-toed sloth is one of four species of three-toed sloths, and there are also two species of two-toed sloths. But the other members of the Pylosa family include anteaters and tamanduas. Huh. Yep. If you want to learn more about the Tamandua, you can go back and listen to episode 12. Ah. So, yeah, that's just a little bit of background information for the sloth. So, effectiveness All right. for the three-toed sloth. This was this surprised me because I picked the sloth thinking I was going to have something to dunk on and thinking I was going to be able to just give it a trash effectiveness score. Uh -huh. I give it a six okay. out of ten. My intention here is to shift the narrative on the sloth uh. because I think that they get a lot of negativity because people aren't interpreting what they do, maybe not according to what the sloths are really going for. That will make sense in a second. Sure, sure. Of course, the sloth is named for how slow they are, right? That's the name, sloth. See, I was going to ask, did the name come first or did the animal? 
the 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 word sloth was already like used for the sin of sloth being like very slow and lazy makes sense yeah so the sloth is named for how slow they are even in other languages (laughs) they (laughs) give it names that mean like slow or like one who is lazy or something like that so their top speed is only around 0.15 miles per hour or 0.24 kilometers per hour they're incredibly slow and by the way that's like as fast as they get that's like they're being attacked and they're trying to like flee from a predator that's still their top speed they are just incredibly slow and they just can't go any faster than that like they literally do not have the muscular capability to go faster than that oh wow so they're so slow in fact that algae and fungi grow in their fur and bugs nest in it so the sloth's (laughs) fur is just one big living ecosystem huh They have a whole world growing in their fur. So a lot of times when you see a sloth, I mentioned that their fur is gray or brown. When you see them in the wild, they're green. And that's not because of their fur. (laughs) It's because of the plants growing in their fur. Nice. Yeah, it's really cool. Even their metabolism is really, really slow. So they all they eat is like twigs and leaves and stuff like very, very fibrous and not very nutritionally dense food. Mm It can take them up to an entire month to digest one meal. Wow. Yeah. It takes them so incredibly long to digest their food. Their metabolism is just painfully slow. And it's kind of thought that their lifestyle has become so slow paced in response to how low calorie and low nutrition their diet is because they're not getting a lot of energy input from their food. So they have a very slow metabolism and just kind of like slow everything because of that. We we talked about this a little bit with a panda, right? Yes. Yep. Yes. So their body has kind of adjusted to (laughs) adapt to their terrible diet. (laughs) So much so they were like, "Uh, I'm not going to go up this hill. I just (laughs) guess I live somewhere else now. (laughs) Bye-bye. So in the same vein. So what they what's actually kind of interesting about their metabolism is that they can slow their metabolism all the way to a complete halt when the temperature around them increases. So if it gets too hot around them, they can completely shut their metabolism down and go into like something similar to a state of torpor because it prevents them from wasting energy and overheating when it gets too hot. As a Floridian, I can relate to this. Yes, we also nap when it's too hot. <laughs> I'm just going to outsleep the weather. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe when I wake up, the air won't be on fire. We yeah. could try that. Yeah. Their just painful slowness makes people often question, why are they not extinct? How have they not been completely hunted into eradication? <laughs> What's the deal? (laughs) They cannot do anything. So it's true that they're pretty defenseless. When they're being hunted by a predator, they cannot fight back because of how slow they are. They can fight back if it's like something small. There's a video of a very, very young harpy eagle trying to take a sloth, and it actually like takes a couple swings with its claws, and the harpy, the eagle leaves it alone. Now, that being said, this is a baby harpy eagle, right? If it had been an adult, it probably wouldn't have been any contest. Sure. But so here's the thing. They're up against jungle predators like the harpy eagle and like the jaguar and the puma and things like that that definitely have the agility game completely cornered. They are not going to outrun that. Like they, I, I feel like they've kind of evolutionarily speaking, they've like realized that they're not going to outrun those predators. So they've taken a different approach. So rather than thinking of their slow speed and their just super slowed down lifestyle as something like laziness or ineffectiveness, I want to think of that as stealth. Ah. It's a stealth mechanism. Hmm. So they're so incredibly slow that it's a form of camouflage. They blend in with the tree branches around them just by being so incredibly slow that you can't see them move. (laughs) Because a lot of their predators have very good vision and are looking for things moving around in the trees. That's true. So they move around very slowly so the predators don't even see them in the first place. So they don't have to run from the predator because the predator doesn't see them. Yeah. So it's just a it's just a different tactic. Rather than evasion, they're evading by stealth, by not being detected. 
So actually, that what I mentioned earlier about algae growing in their fur, mm-hmm. that's actually a symbiotic relationship between them and the algae. So that flora growing in their fur makes them green that improves their camouflage against canopy foliage. Kind of like a built-in ghillie suit. What's a ghillie suit? Oh, it's a military thing. Uh, you probably see it on movies and stuff. Like a sniper has like this suit on that has a bunch of rags and leaves oh, and stuff. Oh, sure, 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 so sure, sure. That, that's a ghillie suit. Okay. Mm. All right. Yes, it's that. Yeah. yeah. They have just plants growing in their fur, so yeah. it makes them blend in a lot better with and the it's, trees. It's probably the same plants that are growing on the trees. So. <laughs> it's mostly like algae and you know little little bits of fungus and stuff. So yeah, it just makes them look like the surrounding foliage. Yeah. So the next thing that I want to talk about, other than like their incredible camouflage that really goes along very, very well with how slowly they move, is you might not look at them and think that they're strong, but they're incredibly strong. Really? Yes. Hmm. So they hang from tree branches using their really, really long claws, with their arms being twice as long as their legs and their very strong grip. They often will stay gripped to the tree even after they have died. Whoa. They will stay hanging onto the tree even after they're dead. Huh. So the reason that they have such a strong grip is because their muscles are largely made of these fibers called slow twitch fibers that allow them to sustain exertion for a very, very long time without using a lot of energy. So in order to think about how strong they have to be, think if you have, for example, a gymnast who is trying to move from maybe one bar to another bar nearby, but having to do that over like 30 minutes yeah, and having to hang from one arm from, you know, holding up their entire body weight with one arm for like 30 minutes, mm-hmm. right? You start shaking, you, you know, your muscles give out and you fall. The sloth will just chill there. Like the sloth can hold its body up with its arms and just very, very slowly move from one branch to another like it's nothing. They can hold their whole body up no problem. That's intense. They're extremely strong. (laughs) (laughs) It makes sense when you think about it because since they do move so slowly, they have to be able to hold themselves up for much longer periods of time than, for example, a monkey that's Mm. like jumping from one tree to another or maybe they're swinging from a branch or something like that, they don't have to be holding themselves up for very long because they're very quickly jumping from one place to another. But the sloth is just through sheer power is climbing very, very slowly from one place to another. What if it's, what if it goes really slow just to flex on all the animals in the forest? Like, yeah, this isn't nothing. I'm just going to. It's a power move. I'm going to take three days to travel <laughs> um, uh, like 500 feet, but that's okay. <laughs> they sleep a lot. They don't sleep as much as people once thought they did. It was once thought that they slept up to 20 hours a day, mm-hmm. which in captivity sometimes they do. But in the wild, it's actually closer to like nine. They don't sleep too much more than humans do. They do sleep a lot, but. Mm-hmm. Not not as much as we thought they did. I mean, when you go that slow, you have to make good use of your time. <laughs> That's literally what they're all about. Like, their entire physical build is meant to completely optimize their energy conservation. Yeah. Like, their entire goal with existing is to be as thrifty as they possibly can with the very little energy that they have. <laughs> Because they're getting so little energy from their diet, right? They have to be very sparing with how they're using their energy. Yeah. But they're very good at that because their types of muscles are just very, very good at sustaining exertion without having to burn a lot of energy. Which is like, I hadn't ever thought of it in those terms. I just thought they were being slow and lazy just because they didn't feel like it. (laughs) (laughs) So um, due to the fact that their muscles do move so slowly, they actually can't shiver to warm themselves up like their muscles can't like twitch or shiver to increase their body temperature so they actually can't thermoregulate like other mammals can Hmm. they have to sunbathe to maintain their body temperature so they have to like go up to the top of the tree and find a good spot to bask in the sun to keep their temperature up 
So unfortunately, that puts them directly in the line of sight for harpy eagles, Mm -hmm. who have very, very keen eyesight, and they are very, very fast and very big and strong. Uh So kind of the hardest possible counter to the sloth. (laughs) Like, you can look it up on YouTube. I spent like all day yesterday watching videos of harpy eagles just plucking these sloths right out of the tree. Like, it is nothing. Like, they just, they swoop in and, like, without even stopping, they just swoop in, grab the sloth, and then fly right off with it. Yeah. So, unfortunately, they put themselves in a position where they're very vulnerable to that when they have to sunbathe. So, that was one of my deductions for their effectiveness. Yeah. They are surprisingly very good swimmers. (laughs) They're good at swimming, which is weird. They actually travel much more quickly in the water than they do on land. Hmm. And sometimes, since they are faster in the water, sometimes they'll drop down directly into the water from the tree because it's faster for them to swim. They are naturally buoyant. They float just naturally. The fur probably helps, I imagine. They have like a downy undercoat that probably traps a lot of air, but actually the biggest factor to their buoyancy is a fact that since they do eat mostly just leaves and twigs, their body produces a lot of gas. So they're full of gas that keeps them afloat. That's not a joke. I'm not kidding. So what you're telling me? Yes. They're fart boats. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Technically speaking, yes, it's a fart boat. They also, something that is really kind of interesting and weird about them is that most mammals have seven cervical vertebrae, so neck bones. Okay. Most of us have seven. We have seven. Giraffes have seven. Most of us have seven. The sloth has nine Hmm. cervical vertebrae. And the significance of this is that it allows them to rotate their head like an owl up up to 300 degrees. I like that. (laughs) <laughs> so they can, well, so this goes back, this ties back into them conserving energy. Sure. This lets them have a very wide range of vision without having to adjust their whole body position. Mm. So without having to exert all of their muscles into turning around, they can just turn their head and see. Now, the problem with this, though, is that they have very poor eyesight. Hmm. They can't see very good at all. <laughs> they really can't. It, I saw that their eyesight works best in low light, but they're like equal parts diurnal and nocturnal. So mm. like they're still active during the daytime. They, just, they can't see real good. <laughs> and also another thing to think about is that like, yeah, they can see threats coming from any angle, but what are they going to do? Run? <laughs> like, what do you do? <laughs> their kind of primary defense mechanism is just staying still. So... I guess if they saw something that they perceived as a threat, they would know just to not move until it's gone. But so they at least have a little bit of threat detection possibility. No real plan B there, though. Nope. <laughs> That's kind of my whole thing that I took off four points for their effectiveness for is that they have a pretty good strategy for not being hunted. But man, I mean, once a predator, like, identifies that they're there, like, once they are detected, it's just game over. There's so little they can do about it. They could try being not tasty. I mean, I would imagine they're probably not. I mean, things are eating them. Their fur is full of mushrooms, so I'm going to say gross. (laughs) Nasty. That could be a plus for some. For you, I'm sure. (laughs) So on land... They are worthless, completely pitiful. Their little back legs are so short and weak that they cannot walk at all. Mm. They have to use their front claws to drag themselves forward in just a very sad crawl. Mm. It's very bad. They actually do have to come down to land to use the bathroom. So about once or twice a week, they have to come down to the ground to use the bathroom. That's unfortunate. Yes. And so at this point, they are just completely easy pickings for literally anything bigger than them that wants to eat them. Like puma, jaguar, doesn't matter. They can just scoop them right up, right off the ground. It's too bad they don't do the bat tactic of just kind of hanging down and doing your business. It's like, clearly that's an option. Y'all, figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) I did see something that said that sloths do this. They go to the bathroom. They go down to the ground to use the bathroom in order to leave their scent markings there. 
So to communicate to the other sloths via scent, like where they are, and this is especially useful for females when they're in heat and ready to mate, mm. that they will do this a lot. That At that point when they're in heat, they will actually go down to use the bathroom every day hmm. just to kind of get their scent out there so that other sloths will smell it and know. Hmm. Yeah. Really, my biggest deductions here were the complete defenselessness that they have, but I did want to give them a lot of points for the fact that they have really just completely overhauled their entire body to be optimized for stealth. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. So I figured that they deserved a lot of credit for that. So moving on to ingenuity. This is where the sloth is driving the struggle bus. Mm -hmm. The sloth is really falling behind here. <laughs> I gave it a four out of 10 for ingenuity, right. which is surprising for a mammal. True. Like mammals tend to be pretty clever, but I, so I did give them four points though. So I'm going to start with the positives because that's how I am. Something that's interesting is that even though their habitat has so much biological diversity, like just think of how many types of plants and trees that there are in the rainforest. There's just so many, True. even though there's so much biological diversity, individual sloths have different preferences for different types of trees. Hmm. Even different sloths of the same species will only have maybe like eight or nine different types of trees that they like. <laughs> so this varies among individuals and they're particularly picky about what types of trees they will visit and what types of foliage they will eat. But this serves a purpose. This allows multiple sloths to share habitat ranges without fighting over resources. Ah. So they can share the same territory range without worrying like, well, he's in my tree eating my leaves because it's like he doesn't want your leaves because he likes a different type of leaf. So I thought that was pretty cool. That's a pretty good way of making the most of their space. What would a sloth fight even look like? It's not great. Have you ever seen like battle bots? I think so. Have you ever seen like really bad battle bots? <laughs> <laughs> just kind of punch themselves. Maybe like a battle bot that has like these three knives attached to it, mm -hmm. but the motor on it is kind of busted or it has low battery or something. So the knives are just kind of like slowly <laughs> rotating towards each other. It's not great. Another thing that I thought was pretty clever of them is that when they do go to the ground to use the bathroom, they move away from where they typically like to hang out. So this prevents predators from being able to track them based on the scent they leave behind from their waist. So they do kind of leave their hangout zone to go to the bathroom. Okay. They have a very, very detailed and thorough mental map of their territory. Hmm. So they know exactly where every little tree, every little plant, they know where everything is, completely have the whole thing memorized. So they, they do it like that because since they are trying to conserve as much energy as they can, they have to know the best possible way to get from point A to point B. They have to know which what is the path of least resistance for them. How can they get there without, you know, wasting four days getting there when they could have only got there in one? Sure. <laughs> Because they're so slow, right? Like the tiniest little detour takes like sure. six hours out of their day. It's the classic shortest path mm -hmm. problem. Yep. They're pretty good at knowing their way around their territory. However, their improvisational ability is severely lacking. So since they do have such a detailed memory map of their territory, if anything about that territory changes, they're completely stumped and they have no idea what to do. <laughs> they're just completely at a loss. They have no idea. This is a quote I would like to drop in. This is from a Mental Floss article titled, The Human Who Teaches Orphan Sloths How to Be Wild Animals by author Jen Pinkowski on April 29th of 2017. And this is about the zoologist Becky Cliff. So Cliff has attempted to measure sloth intelligence. It didn't go well, she admits. <laughs> they placed a three-toed sloth in an outdoor tree maze. It didn't move. <laughs> at all. So I give up. It just didn't move. <laughs> she says, we gave up in the end. When sloths aren't sure what's going on or where they are, they sit still. That's their defense mechanism. So it just sat still for so long that they just called it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the solution will come to me. That's my, that's how I go about my life. <laughs> so I can relate. 
Cliff says, I don't think they're intelligent in the way you think a monkey or a dog is intelligent, but they're smart in their own way, in their mental maps and their memory. In her six years of tracking, she could predict which branch of which tree they'd be on during a given day, but if you cut that tree down, they'd be stumped. I think they're smart in the ways they need to be, but beyond that, there's not much there. (laughs) So, direct quote. From zoologists studying sloths. There it is. Not much there. So that's my four (laughs) out of ten for their ingenuity. All right. This brings us to aesthetics. I gave them a pretty solid six out of ten. Not great. Um, Especially when you compare them to the two-toed sloth, that is much cuter. The two-toed sloth is the one that has kind of like a little piggy face. Is this the one that you see in like, let me think. Uh, how about Zootopia? No, actually, the three-toed sloth is the one working the DMV yeah, in Zootopia. Yeah. That's a three-toed sloth. Okay. The two-toed sloth is the one that has kind of a little, I think of it as a little pig face. The three-toed sloth, I think, is significantly less cute than mm. the two-toed sloth. But I still give it a six out of ten because it's still kind of cute. Mm. They have, I think the black bands around their eyes give them kind of a sad expression, which, you know, I'm kind of a sucker for sad eyes. Mm-hmm. I think that's cute. Um, I think they look like a cuddly Sasquatch. <laughs> it's just what they look like with the matted fur and the long arms and stuff. Yeah. It's a cuddly Sasquatch. Much easier to take a picture of. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Got those high res JPEGs. <laughs> they actually are super like cuddly, like cuddling and touching each other is like an important part of their development. Mm. And since they do like need to be clinging to trees and stuff. When sloths are kept in captivity, a lot of times, like baby sloths and stuff, they'll provide stuffed animals and things for the sloths to cuddle. Oh. Yeah, because cuddling is very important to them. So it's my six out of ten for their aesthetics. Very cute. I'm going to wrap up with a couple of final little miscellaneous info. Their conservation status is of least concern. That's surprising. They're fine. Of course, being arboreal, they are threatened by the loss of habitat due to deforestation. But all things considered, their population numbers are currently doing fine. All right. I was surprised at that because my expectation going into this was that they were terrible. And I was thinking, how could they possibly, (laughs) how could they possibly be thriving? Like, how could they be successful at all? I guess the stealth thing really works. It works so good. Do you want to know how good it works? Yeah. Guess their lifespan in the wild. Uh, I'm going to guess 40 years. 30 to 40 years. You Dang. Got 30 to 40 years. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> 30 to 40 years of not getting eaten by jaguars. Yeah. By just being so darn slow. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. Like, I feel like people aren't giving them enough credit for their stealth capabilities because people are thinking of how slow they are. And comparing that to the evasive tactics of different animals, right? Things like monkeys or deer or something like that. Like their strat is to run as fast as they can to get away from predators. Yep. But the sloth has really dialed into just not being hunted in the first place. Right. And it's working out great for them. It's so. kind of like, like turtles, right? Like They can be slow because they have a very good defense. Yeah, It's like you don't need to be fast at that point. But so that's why I gave them a 6 out of 10 for their effectiveness because I feel like that was what they were trying to do. What their sort of intention was with the way they developed was they were trying to be sneaky. So, I mean, you can't argue with results. For sure. Least concern. In a rainforest? Yeah. And with that kind of lifespan, that's insane. You cannot argue with that. They're doing great. Yep. They're doing good at what they're doing. Of course, I had to give them some knocks for being otherwise entirely defenseless. (laughs) There are videos on YouTube of harpy eagles, jaguars, pumas, all those sorts of things just kind of snatching sloths right up. So... (laughs) It's really pitiful to watch. If you just watch those, you think, oh my gosh, the sloth is the worst. It's so terrible. How are they even still alive? But Question. Yeah. Earlier you mentioned that they can die still holding on to a tree. Mm Mm-hmm. Are there places where there are like sloth skeletons just kind (laughs) of... I would have to guess that at the point where they die holding on to a tree... They probably, at that point, are then eaten by scavengers. That's true. Right? Probably, like, bugs will eat them. Like, some sort of scavenger will probably eat them. Like, once they start to decompose, right? Yeah, Probably things will come by and eat them at that point. 
things die in the jungle all the time and you don't normally see skeletons just laying around like nature has a way of reclaiming what's hers for sure yeah so that's a sloth all right thanks honey that was very informative not our uh most athletic animal yet but has some interesting adaptations He's careful and stealthy yes i can I can vibe with that. It's a good animal. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all we had for this week. I'd like to thank our listeners who have been tuning in every week and letting us know what you thought and also telling your friends about us. We've been seeing a lot of growth and it's been going really, really well. So we're very thankful for that. You can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just search the title of our show and you'll find us. I would like to gently beg that if you use Facebook, please join the group. Oh, yes. We, we have a new group, a brand new Facebook group, and it is called Just the Zoo of Us Official Friend Squad. Mm-hmm. And it is so much fun. And we share um, just kind of any animal related content that stumbles across our news feeds, which I follow like 86 different zoos and aquariums. So my news feed is pretty much mostly just animal stuff. <laughs> but so, yeah, that's where we're hanging out with our listeners and followers and stuff. So so come join us and hang out on our Facebook group. Yeah. If you have an animal species you'd like to hear us review, you can submit those to us either on social media or at thezooofus at gmail.com. A transcript of this episode will be made available at justthezooofus.home.blog. I've been slacking a little bit on the transcripts because they are very difficult to make and they take a lot of time, but I'm still working on it, but we're getting all those up. Yeah. And our last little note, I'd like to thank Louis Zong for the use of his song Adventuring off of his album, B-Sides. Yep. I wake up to that song sometimes in my head. It's a good one to wake up to. It is. Like, all right, time to get up. It is. It sets a good little, it sets a good mood for the day. <laughs> Puts a little spring in your step. Right. But check out all of his other work, too. He's he's the best. Mm-hmm. Everything he does is great and perfect. All of it. Yep. All right. Well, that's all I had for this week. It's good stuff, honey. Thanks. You, too. I love you. I love you. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everyone.